This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining again. When I say the word Mooney, several things might come to your mind. You might remember people in long robes engaging travelers at airports, or you might remember the images of thousands of couples getting married in mass wedding ceremonies. But since the death of Sun Myung Moon, the founder of the Unification Church, now called the Family Federation for World Peace and Unification, Christians' awareness about the Moonies has not been as discussed as it once was. But my next guest is discussing the church because he was a Mooney from 1970. 74 until 1982. William Wells is now a Christian, but today he is asking, why are people looking for a relationship with God in all the wrong places? He addresses this question in his new book, Occult Challenge to the Church. William, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, it's great. You were once a Mooney, and I bet you probably get into a lot of interesting discussions with people when they find that out. But tell us a little bit about your story, how you became a Mooney and your background with Christianity. What all happened to get you into the church in the first place? Well, I grew up a Christian uh, in a Presbyterian church in Alaska. And, uh, you know, I just, bit by bit, I just wasn't, satisfied with the church, and I got to the point where I was asking questions that people weren't answering, and uh, so I decided to kind of strike out on my own, and in college, I kind of read everything there was. Of course, in college, at that time, it was very popular to study Eastern religions and things like that, which I did, and I just found that they weren't satisfying, and basically, my view of Eastern religion is that they're all kind of nihilistic. You know, the idea is to to cease being. Yeah. And uh, so I kind of gravitated back towards Christianity, but not really to Christianity. And the Moonies kind of filled that void for me. They 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 had sort of a a quasi-Christian faith, but it wasn't really Christian, but it seemed that way, and they were very energetic, very... Uh, you know, they were really trying hard to change things for the better. Yeah. Now, did you come across the Unification Church because you met other Moonies, or what was your first encounter with the Moonies? Was it a group that you met, or how did it happen? Yeah, they were doing a campaign. Uh, It was right when I had graduated college, and they had uh, moved, uh, a group of them had come into town and and occupied a... uh, fraternity center and so i happened to be living in that neighborhood so i ran into some of them and wound up you know engaging in them going to their uh, 
conferences and stuff like that. Yeah. So what was it about the Unification Church that appealed to you? Uh, Not only as far as people who were drawing you into the church were treating you, which it sounds like they were very loving to you, but theologically, too. I mean, how did you come to, you know, embrace the theology of the Unification Church as well? Well, they seemed to be very, you know, they had a, a very kind of scientific, I guess you could say, approach. It would be what you would call now uh, probably a liberal theology. Yeah. And uh, which seemed to fit with, you know, I'm, I was a college student, so I mean, I'm just kind of thinking in those lines anyway. And uh, so I kind of, I like that. And But I also like the fact that they had very conservative values. Mm. And so it was kind of a weird mix of uh, conservatism and and uh, not political liberalism, but religious liberalism. Yeah. No, you're right about that. There is kind of that blending together that's a little bit different than some people might anticipate. But, you know, Sun Myung Moon had published that exposition of the divine principle, which has been called a reinterpretation of the Bible that Moonies follow as scripture. What was the essence of the Unification Church's theology, just for Christians who aren't very familiar with what they teach? All right, well, uh, Christology-wise, they believe that Moon was the second coming of Christ, but of course their view of what an anointed Christ is is quite a bit different. Basically, their idea was that he was just a sinless man and uh, not God. So, in that sense, any sinless person would be a Christ, I guess, <laughs> in their thinking. So, you know, they have quite a bit, bit different view from a standard Christian viewpoint. Right. And uh, that basically their whole thinking was that Jesus had failed to do what he was supposed to do, which was to establish a... a, uh, a I guess a theocracy is the best best way to say it. A, basically, a global government uh, based on uh, Christian or you know biblical values. Right. And, and uh, because he failed to do that, then for for the Moonies, they felt that Jesus had failed. Yes. So right. They had, I mean, right. Totally misunderstood the the cross completely. Exactly. Now, one thing that's very interesting that a lot of people might not know about is that Jesus, according to the unification movement, was supposed to have a perfect marriage, wasn't he, in order to redeem humanity? And because he was crucified, he failed. And wasn't that kind of the setup for Sun Myung Moon to come along and say, I'm the third Adam? Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's very very much you're correct on that. Now, I mean, of course, I you know, when you think back on it, it's kind of ridiculous because in his time, it, he would have been married long before he was 20 years old, and he didn't even start his ministry until 30. So, I mean, <laughs> if that's what he was intended to do, <laughs> right. it, it just wasn't working. Uh, no, but th- this kind of explains, though, why the marriage ceremony, the mass marriage ceremonies that took place were so much a part of what the Moonies were known for. Uh, can you explain for people, you know, because I understand from your book, you actually were set up, too. 
Um, yes, these, I had a fiance. You had a fiance. So th- this whole issue of Moonies coming together, thousands of couples all getting married together. They don't necessarily know who they're marrying until they get married. Uh, the significance of that. Why did you have to engage in mass wedding ceremonies if you were a Mooney? Well, uh, the the idea, if you you know, and they're thinking uh, the restoration process of humanity is all about attendance of the Lord of the Second Advent. Okay. So, uh, kind of, when when you submit yourself to Him and are married by Him and, and that sort of thing, then, then that's like a restoration process. Okay. So now, how are you saved? Yeah. When you were in the Unification Church, what is their quote-unquote gospel? Well, I guess that... that Attendance is is kind of their thinking. There is that that attendance uh, is what transforms you into a perfect person. Wow! Did you feel perfect at any point when you were with the Moonies? No, and in fact, you know, as time went on, I kind of felt like I was just wasting my time. Hmm. And uh, and clear, I mean, of course, I show in the book that you know his Moon's kids are definitely not. Uh, paragons of virtue, so I mean, two of them have uh, started their own church, so yeah. they've dropped out of the... the, the and uh, the eldest son, who was supposed to be the heir apparent, uh, was a drug addict that was... Uh, his, his wife... I mean, his his wife actually left him and took the kids, and, and she wrote a pretty scathing book uh, about him. Yeah, so so not so much perfection going on there, and besides, <laughs> yeah, and Moon also spent time in federal prison for filing false tax returns. So that that was a moment at which a lot of people said, "Hmm, perfection." I'm not really sure that the head of this church even knows what that is. He's certainly not perfect. But we're we're going to come back after this break. William Wells is with us. A cult challenge to the church is his book. We'll be back right after this. If you could provide God's Word to a Bible-less believer elsewhere in the world, would you? Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send that Bible today. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those in great need, noting that when the body of Christ anywhere is found lacking, we're encouraged to help provide it. These believers live where churches are small and remote, where authorities aren't welcoming of Christianity, and where Bibles are scarce. As Pastor Carlo in Peru says, they need the hope found only in God's Word. Everyone wants to read the Bible. But what happens, there are a few copies here in the area. Many of them will uh, be sharing the single Bible. For only $5, believers around the world will receive Bibles and be discipled in their new faith. $35 sends seven Bibles, $100 sends 20. And because of a matching gift right now, your gift will be doubled. Call 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 
Open enrollment is here, and choosing a health care program is an important decision for you and your family. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. You can find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us. You don't hear too much about Moonies anymore. I remember when I was younger, we heard a lot more about the Moonies, the Unification Church, Sun Myung Moon. But he died about eight years ago. And you don't hear as much, as I said, anymore about the church. But it is interesting to hear some of the testimonies of people who've come out of it. And such is the case for my guest, William Wells. His book is called A Cult Challenge to the Church. Why are people looking for a relationship with God in all the wrong places? So, William, we had been talking about some of the beliefs of the Unification Church. You entered the Unification Church having grown up in Christianity, but rejected it, but you kind of were drawn to the Unification Church. When you were in the Moonies, did you get a lot of pushback at all from your family, from your friends? I mean, what did people who knew you before you became a Moonie say about your joining the church? Well, yeah, my my parents in particular. I mean, obviously I was kind of off on my own in college and had just graduated, so most of my the people I knew in college were all heading off to different lives, and so you know, I wasn't really around a lot of people that that uh, would critique me, I guess you could okay. say. But my parents definitely didn't like it. Yeah, yeah, and of course, this was what this was 1974 because this was kind of the heyday, wasn't it, when the Moonies were getting a lot of attention? Yes, absolutely. That that was when they were doing their big campaigns across the country, and and uh, they had some huge campaigns in uh, New York and Washington, D.C. Right. So when you would encounter Christians, what kinds of experiences did you have with Christians who knew you were in a cult and weren't necessarily nice to you about it? And maybe there were some who were nicer, but what sorts of experiences did you have during that time? Well, actually, I wound up in quite a few, I guess you could say, arguments with Christians, and uh, particularly after the Moody's actually uh, started a seminary that was mostly Christians teaching there, hmm. which was kind of which put me in a position where usually I could just trash Christians, you know, not not because I was so intelligent theologically, because basically I still had really bad theology, but most Christians don't know their uh, Christian theology very true. well. Yep, they don't know the Bible. Right, you know, that's and, true. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it's like they, have, you know, uh, what is it, the Pew does uh, yearly research and asks people questions about basic biblical understanding, and people are just, it's astounding what they come up with. Agreed. And so well, I've found that 
you know, most of the time, I obviously got into a lot of heated arguments with Christians. <laughs> one, one, one incident that I put in the book was uh, a guy that, he was a pastor, or at least he claimed to be, and uh, I finally decided to try to cool down the argument and walk away. So I said, well, at least we can agree that Jesus is about love, and he screamed back at me, Jesus isn't about love. Ooh, bad answer. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, of course, he was horrified, you know, that he just said that. (laughs) Ooh. But, you know, and I understood that what he was trying to say was that there was more to it than that, but but, uh, I just let him dangle there. I mean, he had... You know, it's it's just we get into heated arguments and we say stupid things. Oh, yeah. So what was it that made you leave? What was it that turned you around and made you finally say, I don't want to be a part of this group anymore? Well, I just, you know, I was uh, almost 30 30 years old. I was turning 30 in a couple of months. And uh, I... I didn't have a real job. I didn't have my own money. I didn't have, you know, I had never owned my own car, nothing. I mean, it was, you know, and I, even with, though I had, by this time, two college degrees, I still wasn't, you know, I mean, I, I barely had, you know, a couple of bucks in my pocket. Hmm. So, uh, you know, it, you know, and I couldn't say that it was worth it. At that point, I mean, I just, you know, I've been doing a lot of things for the Moonies, but it, I, I couldn't say that the world was being changed yeah. or that, you know, anything good was happening because of it. That's interesting. Did you have a hard time leaving? Did they try to keep you? What What was the separation process like? Well, I mean, it's that, you just walk out the door. I okay. Mean, Moonies are out in the public all the time, so... Yeah, I mean, leaving isn't that difficult, and I didn't have much to myself, so I could pack it up in a couple of boxes, and I was gone. So that wasn't hard, and I had, obviously, a lot of friends and colleagues in the Church that that they were coming to try to convince me to come back, Mm -hmm. and uh, that that was always, particularly, you know, because I'd left with another uh, Mooney, that I married, and uh, she wasn't too thrilled to see my colleagues showing up and trying to convince me to to uh, come back to the church. Wow. Well, now, how did you end up becoming a Christian? Well, I mean, I, I still had, you know, I I had a much. <laughs> it's kind of odd. I mean, as a as a Mooney, I was praying all the time. <laughs> And so I had a relationship with God, but it wasn't, you, you know, despite all the weird theology and everything, I still had a relationship with God. I was talking to God every day, you know, mm-hmm. and I just felt I need to find a place to plug in. And, and uh, so I you know, basically went back to churches similar to what I'd grown up with, which was Presbyterians, and I wound up going to some Methodist churches and mm-hmm. other things like that. But, mm-hmm. Right, you know, but, at, but did you, re- you ended up leaving, though, the theology of the Unification Church behind and embracing Christian theology, right, at that point? Yeah, I mean, obviously it took time to really kind of straighten my thinking out, you know, and, but I had, in a, uh, I guess, 
in a, in a way, I had a pretty good foundation in the sense that two years in seminary, I had been my my professors were for the most part all Christian. Hmm. That's so weird. Had, uh, <laughs> so yeah, weird. I mean, <laughs> wow. So, and you know, and some of them were, you know, I mean, some of them were obviously very. They were, uh, I guess, what you would call liberal mm-hmm. theology. Of course. Of and, course. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, and then you had, uh, there was a Jewish uh, a rabbi teaching Old Testament and uh, some other things. But, I mean, you know, I had a pretty good foundation that way. It was just a matter of kind of sifting through it and and getting hold of the ideas and understanding it better. Coming back to your senses. Now, when you're asking this question, why are people looking for a relationship with God in all the wrong places? I know one of your concerns is, what is it that makes people like you leave Christian churches and join a cult like the Unification Church? And and people do this sort of thing all the time. They'll leave to join, you know, another church or another religion sometimes or a Christian cult sometimes, or they leave and they don't want to be anything anymore. What do you think the church can do about that? Do you do you see some cracks in the foundation, as it were, in how Christian churches treat people versus how the Moonies treated you? What What do you think about all of this now that you're out of the Moonies? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean that that's kind of why I wrote the book is that I feel like a lot of times Christians don't represent Christ very well. And uh, as a result, people get tired of seeing a, you know, a talking head up there preaching at them, and, but they don't feel that it's really, I guess you would say, it's not being manifest in front of them. You know, the, the, the self-sacrifice and the things, you know, that Jesus taught. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, I kind of go through a lot of that in the book, you know, different aspects of Christianity, and just uh, as a Mooney, running into Christians on the street and having them just not act like Christians, yeah, not, saying, like, not act like you would expect them to. Yeah, saying Jesus is not about love might be a... <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, obviously that was an extreme case, right. and I don't think the guy really meant that. Yeah, <laughs> of course, of course, I'm kind of joking, but but yeah, of course, and I think there are a lot of Christians who would agree with you and, and can cite experiences they've had inside their own churches where somebody definitely did not treat them in a Christ-like way. In particular, though, William, what would you hone in on as far as what you'd like to see Christians be, you know, acting like and doing with more fervor? I mean, for example, the Moonies are involved in what was called love bombing. And there's just a lot of love and a lot of acceptance and warmth and all this kind of thing. And it's a recruiting tactic in some ways, but it is very compelling for people who have been drawn in that way. Is that the sort of thing that you have in mind when you're saying Christians live like Jesus lived, you know, show the love of Christ and show enthusiasm, those sorts of things? are Is that what you have in view? Well, to a degree, yeah. I mean, I, I think Christians, by and large, do a pretty good job of, uh, I mean, you, you think about it, in the world, I mean, who starts started orphanages, who yes. started hospitals, yep. who started, you know, food aid programs, and so on and so forth. I mean, I, that's one of the things I talk about in, is, is uh, a professor who was a Christian, and another professor, like, was surprised that he was involved in uh, food pantries and things like that. And he's like, 
what do you think runs those? Right, <laughs> right. That's <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> not, I think his, his comment was, it's not university professors with multi-million dollar endowments that run food kitchens. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and that's that's an important point because you're, you're right. When you look back on the history of Christianity and some of the involvement that Christians have had in helping other people, that is a great witness. And it's also important to be a witness verbally and, and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ so that people truly can know Christ in a saving way. And that's really the most important thing of all. The name of the book, Occult challenge to the church. William Wells with us. William, thank you for sharing your story. It was great to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me on. You're welcome. God bless you. We'll be back on Janet Mefford today. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. A study from the Commonwealth Fund recently found that 43.4% of Americans have been inadequately insured for health coverage in the first half of 2020. But even worse, roughly one quarter of all people insured through their employers are still considered to be underinsured. And Benefits Pro notes that means their plan cost sharing responsibility is so high relative to their income that they often cannot afford to use their benefits. How scary is that? But cost, of course, is a huge concern consideration when it comes to paying for health care costs. And I think we've all been there in one way or another. The question is, are you stuck with your unaffordable employee health insurance? Actually, you're not. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that today with Matt Bellis, Chief Communications Officer for Liberty Health Share, a national nonprofit health care sharing ministry. Matt, so good to have you here. So good to be here. Thanks for having me, Janet. Sure thing. How much do you think cost matters to people when it comes to this whole issue of paying for their health care? Well, that's actually the number one issue that people come to us over and tell us about, that, that the fact that costs have risen in such a significant way that have really contributed to the bureaucracy and the overhead of healthcare has really driven a lot of people to seek out different ways, different forms of taking care of their medical expenses. Yeah. And so pricing is a very, very big issue, and frankly, it's one of the the largest uh, issues in healthcare today. Uh, that's why you see so many laws and regulations about it. Yeah. Well, in the last 10 years, with the advent of Obamacare in particular, uh, there have been huge surges of people saying, I-, I-, I just can't continue to pay this. And when the premiums are going up and up and up and up, have you seen big surges because of this increase in cost when it comes to health insurance and the third party payer system? Well, looking at the market in total over the past 10 years of having to deal with health care costs and the advent of the ACA being introduced into the economy, we've actually seen the average cost of health care rise almost 20 to 40 percent, given on your area of where you are. Now, that's real cost of what people are paying for health care. Uh, that's not just the fact of uh, of having to 
go to the doctor and, and seeing what the bill is, those costs rise in large part due to uh, what the, uh, the the bureaucracy of healthcare is going under. But in the real dollars that people spend every single month within their healthcare bills, a an average 20 to 40 percent, and some people have had a lot more. Anecdotally, I will say that uh, back in 2013, uh, my wife's uh, healthcare bills each month grew dramatically just to add our newborn son uh, to her program. And that's part of the reason why we were so glad to be a part of Liberty HealthShare. Oh, yeah. Congratulations, by the way. That's fantastic. But, you know, this is a huge problem. When I'm reading these statistics, and I'm sure they strike you the same way, Matt, that you have all of these people, nearly half of Americans who are inadequately insured for health coverage, and about a quarter of them are considered to be underinsured because they can't afford the cost-sharing responsibility. Now, explain how it is different with Liberty HealthShare. When you're talking about what people go through when they are signed on to an insurance plan through the workplace versus your members who are, you know, engaging in this cost sharing model, because this is new to a lot of people. It is for some people. And and frankly, uh, it, it shouldn't be because it really is what you would normally do whenever you are confronted with something that is unaffordable and unexpected. Uh, if you had an accident or if you had uh, something happen in your life that you couldn't pay for and it was out of the blue, it would be your friends and family and your community and your church even that you would turn to in those times of need. That's basically what we've done with Liberty HealthShare. We just put some uh, technology and efficiencies behind it, but we're a group of individuals who have voluntarily gathered together to share in the expense of medical costs. And we do that every single month without the advent of any kind of third-party payment system or government program. We do that with each other to pay for our health care bills on a regular, consistent, predictable basis. We're not insurance. We don't want to be insurance. We don't want to even be thought of as insurance. We're individuals who are considered private pay patients who are voluntarily sending our bills and sharing those medical bills with one another. So it does act differently in the way that people are used to paying for health care, but it really is exactly what you would normally do whenever you had a situation come up that was unexpected and unaffordable. It would be those those communities that you would turn to, and that's just what we've done with Liberty Health Share. Well, and can you talk a little bit, Matt, about the personalization that Liberty Health Share gives to its members? Because when I hear about these members interacting and praying for one another, there's a personal aspect to the involvement that your members have. Can you tell people a little bit about why that makes Liberty Health Share really a good alternative for a lot of people just on that angle? as well as on cost? Well, because we are a healthcare sharing nonprofit, it really is being a part of Liberty HealthShare, an extension of our faith and our desire to live in community and work in community with one another. Uh, it, whenever we have a medical bill, it's not just the needs of our health care or our financial needs that need attending to. It really is our spiritual needs as well. And so our community gathers together online in our community system called ShareBox, where we're able to pass back prayers back and forth, let people know what's going on in our lives, request prayer, and know that we have a community of people that we're giving to, not only financially, uh, not only to uh, to help in their health, but to help them spiritually as well. This is an extension, an outgrowth of what we truly believe, and that is an integral part 
into what we do into caring for one another. This isn't just about health care costs and access, however important that is, but this is about you as a whole being being a part of that community that supports you 100%. Well, that is terrific. It's a great advantage. It, you know, obviously, for people who are new to healthcare sharing ministries like Liberty HealthShare, there are questions about payment, you know, when they say, how how can I be sure that my medical bills will be covered? Uh, this is a new system to me. And I'm not used to doing my health care costs this way. How do you explain that angle to newcomers to Liberty HealthShare? Well, whenever you join Liberty HealthShare, each and every month, your money goes to help somebody else who is actually in need. You're actually able to see where your money goes each and every month. So your money what we call a share amount, goes to those members in need. And likewise, whenever you have a medical concern or a medical bill, our members send that money to you. And Liberty HealthShare is just there to aggregate those relationships and make sure the money goes to the right place. Uh, And this year alone, we've shared almost a half a billion dollars worth of medical bills uh, going to our members this year alone. Uh, We have some fantastic news as it pertains to how we're actually able to help people and get them through those financial issues. But if you're coming to Liberty HealthShare, you've never been a part of it and really want to make sure that your money is going through to, uh, to others, transparency is key, and we want people to know exactly where their money is going. So you're able to see that right in their share box. You're able to track it, know where it's going, where the money's coming from whenever you're actually receiving a uh, a medical bill. And we have a community of people who have long held to this tradition of healthcare sharing and want to see that tradition continue and are active members and participants a part of it. So good. And, And as you mentioned before, on the private pay, Uh, point. This is a very important point for people to understand. Uh, This is private pay. I mean, if you go into your doctor's office or if you go into your local hospital, you are presenting your Liberty HealthShare card and and this is how it works. So you can actually have your doctor, can't you? (laughs) Unlike other people who said you could and then it didn't pan out that way. You you can go to your doctor. If your doctor will take Liberty HealthShare, everything will work out fine for you. We're not going to stand in the way of that relationship. If you want to keep the doctor that you've had always and he's comfortable with you as a Liberty HealthShare member, we'll say absolutely fine. We're not going to give you a network of doctors that you have to go see uh, because we have some predetermined uh, cost structure or benefit structure that works specifically for our network. That's not the way it works at all. We want to restore the relationship between the doctor and the patient, and we as Liberty HealthShare want to fade into the background. We want you to regain that uh, relationship with your doctor and make decisions based on what's best for your health, not for what's best for Liberty HealthShare. Well, check them out at libertyhealthshare.org. Matt Bellis with us. Matt, thanks so much and hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. All right. God bless you. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. The Ministry of Preborn is there for moms in crisis who are choosing between life and death for their preborn babies. Meet Sophie. 
At 22 weeks pregnant, Sophie was pressured by her mother and boyfriend to terminate her pregnancy. After meeting with a preborn counselor, she found the love and support she needed. After I had that first ultrasound and I saw her and I was looking at the pictures over and over and over again, that's when I decided I was going to stand up to my mother and tell her, no, I can't do an abortion. Sophie chose life, and now she's awaiting the birth of her baby girl. Every day, Preborn is on the front lines fighting Planned Parenthood to help young moms just like Sophie to choose life. For a gift of $140 today, you can help to rescue five babies' lives. And now through a matching gift, your gift will be doubled, rescuing 10 babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet. Welcome back. I find this to be very interesting. There appear to be two different Dr. Fauci's. Have you noticed this? The COVID-19 guru, Dr. Anthony Fauci, he's still around. He's not doing his daily coronavirus briefings with the president anymore, but he's popping up all over the place in the mainstream media. And half the time, you don't even know what he's talking about because it completely contradicts what he's talked about before. Uh, Back in June, Dr. Fauci was taken to task by Senator Rand Paul because he said, you're being completely unclear on whether or not children should go back to school. Do you remember when that whole debate was taking place? Dr. Fauci, oh, Dr. Fauci, what about the children? And Dr. Fauci would say very clear statements like, well, it depends. Thanks, Dr. Fauci. That was very helpful. So Rand Paul who is a physician himself, was very frustrated by this and confronted Dr. Fauci about this. And then he talked again about the fact that he did this on social media yesterday. But here is what is so interesting to me. And this is going to serve as a backdrop for what I'm going to get into in a couple of minutes. Dr. Fauci now seems to have clarified his position in light of the fact that you've had problems in New York, and that's another scenario, the New York City schools closed and then they suddenly opened just yesterday. So all kinds of weird things are happening. But I want you to listen to what Dr. Anthony Fauci had to say just a few days ago on ABC News. This is cut one. Dr. Fauci, New York City public schools shut down again earlier this month. I know your default position is that you'd like to see the schools open, but how do you make that happen? And how would you advise the incoming Biden administration on getting a sort of unified response? Well, you know, Martha, that's a good question. We get asked it all the time. You know, we say it not being facetiously as a soundbite or anything, but, you know, 
close the bars and keep the schools open is what we really say. Obviously, you don't have one size fits all, but as I said in the past, and as you accurately quoted me, the default position should be to try as best as possible within reason to keep the children in school or to get them back to school. The best way to ensure the safety of the children in school is to get the community level of spread low. So if you mitigate the things that you know are causing spread in a very, very profound way, in a robust way, if you bring that down, you will then indirectly and ultimately protect the children in the school because the community level is determined how things go across the board. So my feeling would be the same thing. If you look at the data, the spread among children and from children is not really very big at all, not like one would have suspected. So let's try to get the kids back, but let's try to mitigate the things that maintain and, and just push the kind of community spread that we're trying to avoid. And those are the things that you know well. The bars, the, the restaurants where you have capacity seating indoors without masks. Those are the things that drive the community spread, not the schools. What I'm thinking at this point is this guy is just winging it at this point because he's contradicted himself so many times. Here he was chastised by a U.S. senator for not being clear on the school issue. And now he's saying, close the bars, keep the schools open. He acknowledges that the infection rate among children is a big nothing, which, by the way, it is. Even if you have some cases, kids don't die from COVID and asymptomatic kids. And there are really a lot of those do not generally spread COVID-19 to anybody else. This school thing is ridiculous. So he's finally coming around. Well, what are you supposed to do if you close the bars and limit the restaurants and close the businesses, but Walmart can stay open and the abortion clinics can stay open and make sure you close the churches, but the liquor stores can remain open. None of this is science, folks. None of it. None of this is science. This is the same guy who said, don't wear masks. Oh, wait a minute. I meant wear masks. And then he's photographed without a mask, yucking it up in the baseball stadium stands just a few months ago. Now, why does this matter? Well, the New York issue has now taken a turn. As The Hill reports, Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, has announced his plans to reopen public New York City elementary schools in a reversal from his shutdown of all schools almost two weeks ago. But science... Wait a minute. But science, but science. Yeah, he suddenly made a change. What do these leftists sit around and say, well, this week's narrative is going to be dot, dot, dot. Now, why is this important in the broader context of what I'm going to talk about? Because a federal appeals court has now upheld Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear's order halting in-person classes at public and private religious-based schools amid the pandemic. Well, this is weird timing. This was a ruling on Sunday, according to the uh, Courier-Journal, overturning a U.S. district judge's temporary injunction that would have allowed religious schools to continue having students meet in classrooms. Why do you have the schools closed at all, Bashir? Dr. Fauci says, close the bars, open the schools. That's what he said. This is a report from Kentucky's WFIE. Cut to. Parents react. Just closing it down. I mean, I just, I don't see the need in that. I really wish that they would just go in person. To the decision made on Sunday by a three-judge panel who ruled that Governor Bashir's executive order doesn't discriminate against a certain group, issuing all religious and private schools to halt in-person learning and go virtual. You have to think about the kids' mental health. I mean, 
you know, they're so used to seeing other students. They're used to be, you know, they're used to being around other kids. And it's like, you know, we keep them at home to do the schoolwork. And it's like, how, how, how us parents can we manage that? For Morgan Payne and many other parents we spoke to, their kids learn better in person, making the ruling more difficult to continue the school year. All right. None of this makes any sense, does it? Going back to this story in the Courier-Journal, Bashir said the court recognized that we must all do our part over the next several weeks to slow this virus because the slowdown, the lockdowns and the masks, they've just worked so well in the past that we're just going to do more of it because we eradicated COVID-19 the first time that we shut you all down and the first time that I was doing all sorts of totalitarian things to churches in the state of Kentucky that worked fabulously well. So let's make sure to do more of that. Listen to this quote from him. He says, while we all want to get our kids back to in-person instruction, as Dr. Fauci says you should, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit recognized that doing so now would endanger the health and lives of Kentucky children, educators, and families. Folks, this is just a lie. It's just a flat-out lie. You do not have widespread COVID-19 infection rates in the schools that are open. It's just not true. You don't have asymptomatic children causing widespread outbreaks among the teachers and among the faculty at these schools. This is not true. And how long are we going to sit here like sitting ducks and listen to this garbage from these leftists? Oh, masks, no masks, masks, no masks, lockdowns, no lockdowns. Well, they never say no lockdowns. Uh, lockdowns, more lockdowns. We've had too many infections. We've had too many cases. And now you have the chief, who was this, of the World Health Organization just recently saying, well, just because we have a vaccine coming online doesn't mean we're going to stop our COVID-19 crackdowns. Oh, that's nice. So the goalposts have moved once again. Again, from our show several days ago with Patrick Wood on The Great Reset, you got to understand what's really going on here. There is a real virus that really has struck people, and tragically, people have died from this virus, but over 99% of people who contract the virus will survive it. This is not the Black Plague. I say this over and over again, and it's very frustrating because as they are quashing small businesses, driving small businesses out of existence... They're allowing the big tech and the big box and, you know, the big online retailers, they're doing just fine. They're allowing them just fine. And, you know, we, we, we have to lock you down. We have to mask you. We have to make sure. And they're imposing all of these over-the-top restrictions. And who is fighting back and saying, well, wait a minute, when you did this before, you said it was 15 days to slow the spread. Wasn't it supposed to be about preventing the hospitals from being overwhelmed? And that never happened. And by the way, I was reading an account of a doctor in the Midwest who said, you know, the hospitalization rates that we're seeing where we are are just normal for the winter because we don't have the flu cases that we've been having over the last several years. Our hospitals are fine. We're usually pretty full this time of year because it's late fall. And that's when viruses spread. That's when we see a lot more viral illnesses and respiratory illnesses. So, you know. It's not that big of a deal. This is my point. I think when you have the Kentucky governor allowed to halt in-person classes at Christian schools, and now even the Kentucky attorney general has filed a brief in response to the appeal, keeping religious private schools closed, you have a problem that goes way beyond COVID-19. I'm to the point of just being fed up with it. (laughs) How long do we have to put up with the nonsense? You can't close Christian schools. 
You can't, especially when you can't back up your alleged science by saying it's necessary for the health and safety of the children. Even the king of COVID-19 is saying that's not true. So I hope that's going to be part of the pleading in some of these other amicus briefs that have been filed from other Christian schools. You guys need to fight back there in Kentucky because this is just ridiculous. You know, and even the Supreme Court recently said you got to recognize religious freedom in the case of those synagogues, in the case of the Catholic diocese in Brooklyn. We need more religious freedom, not less. Thanks for joining us on Janet Meffer today. We'll see you next time.